I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, art historian extraordinaire, Lizzie Dastin, and myself, Justin Bua, art historian. <laughs> you are. Not officially, but, you know, <laughs> by way of doing it my entire life. <laughs> You're anointed. Yes, thank you so much. And you can anoint me. If anyone can anoint me, that is legit. <laughs> uh, today, we are back. We're doing it again. We just don't stop doing it. It's really true. Like we're doing it and doing it and doing it then. I represent Queens, but I was raised out in Brooklyn. What we're doing is continuing art history and making it accessible and available for everybody. And I think the way that we, just a moment to wax poetic on what we're doing here, but the way that we're able to do this is that a lot of people think that art history isn't interesting. They're not really compelled to look into the lens of art, through the lens of art, to see history. But I think you and I do that. You and I actually do it. We do it in a, a really you know, contemporary and cool way because we're coming from it from a place of incredible love, not just a deep understanding, but a real passion and love for it. And I think we've illuminated a lot of people because people have been hitting me up saying, hey, you know, Boo Lizzie, you know, I'm, I'm feeling art like I never felt it before. Or finally a place where I could resonate in the world. Oh, that's amazing. I really hope that we are re-energizing the past because you are so well-versed in contemporary art and street and urban, and that is a specialty of mine too. But I think that it's even more illuminating to look backwards and to see how the work that was done 200 years ago even, how that can still be vibrating for us today and how we can learn from the past and better understand our present as a result. Yeah, and today, on that note, we're going to go into Auguste Rodin. Auguste Rodin, who, in my opinion, is the second greatest sculptor to ever have lived. Who would be the first? Michelangelo. Oh, right. In the room, the women come and go, talking about Michelangelo. T.S. Eliot. But Rodin, you can feel his love of sculpture. In fact, I wouldn't even say he's a sculptor. He's a modeler first. Michelangelo is a sculptor. He worked in marvel with a chisel and a hammer. But Rodin, the second greatest sculptor ever to live, which is pretty amazing because he's the most important sculptor, uh, I think, modern sculptor, and made modern sculptor. But anyway, he used his hands. He was a modeler. This is back, and he was born in 1810. And he was, he was a real modeler. He built it with his hands. He imitated nature. Nature taught him, was his greatest teacher, but he was really all about imitating nature, following. It doesn't come from nowhere. It's coming from the earth, the mother, the nature, our greatest teacher, our spiritual guide, which was God to him in many ways. Imitating nature, sure. I think that's a really evocative way to describe his work, but he does it in an interpretive way. What I find so remarkable about Rodin is that he completely dismantles the expectations of sculpture and reinvents it in a more authentic, sincere way that he felt was the essentialized view of the world rather than just what it looks like on its surface. And he completely bucked the system. And at the time when he was really working, neoclassical sculpture 
was in vogue. So this means sculptures that are polished to such a degree that they shine equally. Every part of the sculpture looks as finished as every other part. And with Rodin, he made his work much more fragmented and the light hits it at different points. And so it looks more three-dimensional in some ways, more jagged, almost like the undulating swells of the ocean. And it feels Ooh, alive and organic. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and I'm sure you do, that he was rejected from the Ecole de Beaux-Arts three times. Yes, he was. Yeah. So he kept on trying to ingratiate himself in the mainstream institution, and he kept on being rejected because his ideas were were just so heterodox and disruptive, as I say, and that ended up launching modern sculpture in a way that we had never seen before. For me, Rodin essentializes, whittles down his subject into its very truth. That you said so much, like so much, and of important information that I feel like you caught his work and his life in a. In, in that in that dialogue, uh, but let's break down what all that really means because, like you said, he did get uh, rejected by the academy. Okay, so how can somebody so academically understood be rejected? Right, because Rodin wasn't just this Alexander Calder contemporary sculptor without an academic foundation. His work was incredibly, incredibly academic. The first work he comes out with that's really inspirational and aspirational and beautiful and super, uh, it's really classical, is The Age of Bronze. You know that one, right? I do. You, you didn't know all about it. Okay, but, <laughs> but when he came out with that, that freaked people out. Everybody talked about it, which really made Rodin Rodin, right? At the end of the day, Rodin got famous because of his, the conspiracy that he didn't actually do that sculpture that he actually cast the Age of Bronze, which was a beautiful young man who was supposed to be holding a lance, but he took the lance out for whatever reason. You probably know why. You don't. Okay. I don't. Oh, that, but that's interesting. Like, why did he take the lance out? I think because he was separate. He was separating his, himself from the neoclassical work of myth and mythology of doing those kind of paintings. Like that's what I was just going to say, that we don't need any kind of other external object to give us identifying information about the figure. It's about the essential truth of the soul of the human spirit. And so with the sword or a lance or whatever else it is, that just seems extraneous. So I would imagine that he eliminated it for that, that it was just too much superfluous information. Yeah. And, uh, it was really beautiful and very delicate and very fragile. And like I said, the anatomy was beautiful, the way that the deltoid is picking up and the gestural qualities of the hand. But what really made Rodin famous, going back to that, is the fact that everybody thought because it was so perfect that he used a, a gentleman to cast it. And he had to release all these photos to the public and show, I never did that. These accusations are false. Les accusations, c'est faux alors, right? Oh, right? That sounded great. Yeah. <laughs> Les accusations, pour moi, non, pas du tout, parce que je suis artiste. And he was, man. No, I'm serious. Like, Rodin, I believe, did all that. And that's, you know, he just, he was a modeler later in life when he became much more abstract and loose and gestural. But initially, 
He was a classical sculptor with a little, just a little bit of a twist. That was it. It was just a little bit of a twist. I'm going to celebrate the human form for the human form, not for the fact that it's a mythological moment. You know what I mean? That's what he did. He took, that was the first time that he's like, anybody was just doing a, a statue for a statue's sake. A human form to celebrate the human form. It didn't have to be attached to Bacchus. It didn't have to be attached to Achilles. It wasn't doing anything. It wasn't in any mythological narrative. It was just the fucking human form because he loved it. And that's what that was. And that's what I think freaked people out. What the fuck is this? You can't do that. Can you imagine that back then? Like we're, how different our minds have become now. That would be nothing because yeah. we're so inundated with like craziness and insanity and nudity and profanity mm. that back then something like that freaked the public out. I think that's a really good point because prior to Rodin, if you think about who gets to be sculpted, it's somebody who has already been celebrated within a zeitgeist. So we have Michelangelo's David, a significant religious figure, or mythological narratives, or soldiers, generals. These are the people who are monumentalized in sculptural form. And I do think that sculpture is even a more traditional medium than painting because, first of all, there are fewer people who can actually work with these venerable materials of bronze and marble. It's technically more challenging or requires more education than paint even. I mean, of course, painting requires a lot to master, but I think just to wield... And I knew that was I coming. I think I have to disagree with... Almost everything, but that's okay. But that's okay. No, I. <laughs> but, but I could see that. there are fewer sculptors than painters, and so yeah. I think as a result, who gets to be rendered? I, I will. I will. I have to say something though. For one, I do know. I think I want to be a sculptor. I'm like a. I'm like a fanboy. Like I've done it a little bit, but like I feel like it's its own thing. It's incredibly difficult. Really is because to think in three dimensions is like. I mean, that's heavy duty. Uh, and as you know, I'm doing sculpts now, but. Painters oftentimes go to sculpture and it's very easy for them. Sculptors, on the other hand, can't become painters or draftsmen very easily. I've seen some that can easily, but <laughs> why is that? Because if one is such a fluid thing, I would say that like 95% of good drafts and good painters become good sculptors. Hmm. And I would say that it's like maybe 15% of sculptors become good draftsmen and good painters. I can see that. They're totally different skill sets. But, but I think in, in the end... It's impossible to say one's harder than the other, but it's interesting that the brain can go that way. The painter draftsman translates to sculptor easier than sculptor translates to painter draftsman. Sure, I see that. But I do think mm -hmm. that one medium is more conservative or more typically traditional than the mm -hmm. other. And especially when we have public monuments, rarely are you going to have a mural of a general or a significant figure. You're going to have a sculpture, or at least at the time that Rodin was working, that was the case. And so I think that's how he was able to be so controversial because he's not sculpting somebody that outwardly has great significance. He's sculpting people, an average person. And I think his critics and his viewers were really startled by that. And I think they were also startled because his works looked as though they were unfinished. They looked like a maquette and not a fully realized version. And so I think those two things aligned together really frame the initial outrage or the controversy or the discomfort when looking at Rodin's works. Well, I think you said something there that was good because you said that uh, 
the, the smoothness. It was that he didn't have that. But yet, in the age of bronze, it is really smooth, right? It is like creamy almost, comparatively. Am I right about oh, that? Oh, it is, yeah. So yeah. that is a more... I would say that that's a less mature Rodin just because the form itself, although it's unconventional in the ways that you outlined, but it is conventional more so in the rendering of the body itself. So if we're going to talk about one of his more mature works, Mm -hmm. we could do The Walking Man, which has personal significance to me because it's installed right in a courtyard of my college. So there is a version at Wellesley College. Funny because Wellesley isn't all women's school, and this is a gigantic male body coursing through the alley. Anyway, so this work took him decades to fully realize because it started as an image or a mold of John the Baptist with a head, with arms, also a nude figure, which we don't really see John the Baptist nude all that often. He tends to be shown with his fur, the coat. The fur coat, that's his signifier. So Rodin would cannibalize his own work and he would use pre-existing molds from other sculptures that he did and then put them together. So Mm. in The Walking Man, he ends up taking off the head of the figure and also the arms. And it is a really stark piece and it has such a monumental presence. And critics didn't really know what to do with it because both of the feet are firmly planted and... The title says walking man, but he's not really walking. He's sort of planted, firmly rooted, and he doesn't have a head. And so he's not a full man and he's not fully walking. And so they felt like it was just, there was a disconnect within what Rodin was trying to present and what he actually created. But there is so much movement. You don't need to show a figure halfway into are halfway off the ground in order to communicate the expression, the the essentialized version of what it is to walk. And so I think Rodin was just really very clever in the way that he's rendering motion. Yeah, it's interesting because you jump really far forward into Rodin's world where it becomes more the sculptor that everybody knows him today as. Uh, and that's those are all incredible points. And you could see just his command of anatomy, his understanding of form in space, his understanding of, you know, contraposto, which is like the distribution of weight and mass. His understanding was very deep in that way. You don't see a lot of, sometimes you see sculptors that are technically good, but they don't feel the weight. They don't feel the hips on the side of the chair. You know what I mean? They don't feel like the actual gravity and the earth touching groundedness. Rodin, you feel that he felt that. That was something else. That was another level. And yet he was still able to be delicate and sincere and fragile. If you go back to his early works, kind of coming out of the Age of Bronze, we see the kiss. And the kiss is, you know, once again, probably one of the most famous sculpt, you know, sculptings ever. Ever. That's the crazy thing. It's like David, the kiss. I think the kiss is more famous in terms of you know, the population than anything, right? Don't you think? I don't know if I would say it's more famous than Michelangelo's David, but it's certainly a more relatable image because if we don't necessarily connect with biblical narratives, we can connect with interpersonal romance. And do you know the story of the kiss? Please tell me. I don't really know it too well, but since it just kind of came into my mind and all of a sudden (laughs) it's like, damn, I remember that. But it was definitely about... 
uh, an affair that these two people were having. And I believe that, you know, it was like very handsome man kissing this handsome, this beautiful goddess of a woman. And this was a little bit more goddess, but it was, atta- it was I think it was attached to a real story. And once again, that becomes he becomes the visual documentarian in the three-dimensional space, right? Not he's the reporter of the of the times, like cool stuff. So it's about these people having an affair. The husband comes home afterwards and kills them. Oh. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a count. He comes home and finds this really like, ugly count, finds handsome young man kissing his wife. Gotta kill you. But this is the moment before that. Mm. This is passion. This is love. This is uh complete looks like what innocence is because it's white marble, right? White, this beautiful, shiny marble of like just placid. You could feel how smooth and delicate it is. And at the same time, there's there's a darkness to this. You know, there's a real morbidity to it. It's solemn. It's, it's like heavy. You know that this is their last kiss. So it's like, yeah, it's the kiss. <laughs> but is it the last kiss? I don't know. Because I don't really know the story that well. <laughs> but I decided like... You told it pretty well. Yeah, but it, it's not... You know, you look at his his work, and he is a documentarian. The Burgers of Calais, right? All these people that came forward during the English-French War, right? Oh, yeah. I can talk about that one yeah, a little please bit. Go, but, but talk about that, because I feel like what we're getting here is that Rodin is beyond just a sculptor. Rodin's beyond a realist. Rodin is kind of like an actual historical teller of truth and not... Bullshit, science fiction, fantasy, mythology. Sure. Right? And there's so much psychological curiosity in his work and also tension. So in The Kiss, the story that you just shared is a tension between the seduction and the intimacy of the moment and the knowledge of what is soon to come and the poignancy of that and the the sadness. It's almost like a memento mori. And in that respect, there's so much psychological push and pull And with the Burgers of Calais, we see that too. So there are these moments where the figures who are being sculpted don't know something that we, the viewer, that we do know. So in the case of the Burgers of Calais, this was a commission that he received. And the story is from the hundreds-year war between France and England. And this French province called Calais, they were under siege from, I think it was King Edward III, And he said, if you relinquish the keys to the city and if six of your most prominent council members will sacrifice their lives, then we're not going to totally demolish the the people of Calais. And so these six burghers, their council members, they were ready to surrender their lives for the ultimate good of their community. And that is the moment that we see. And instead of just one person being rendered, heroicized, historicized, Rodin, he sculpts six of them. And not in any kind of hierarchical order. Mm -hmm. We see them in a circle. And that was really new because if you think about monumental public sculpture, it's one person who is often on a gigantic pedestal Mm. like they're some sort of god figure. And here, there's no pedestal at all. We as viewers can interact with them almost on the same level as they themselves would have been. And the faces are so psychologically complex. We see a whole variety of emotions and this realization that they are about to martyr themselves for the good of something larger. And we as viewers know that they ended up not being sacrificed, but they didn't know that at the time that they were sculpted. And so just like what you said about the kiss, Mm. we have access to knowledge that they don't. 
What an amazing thing to be a martyr and then not die. But I just thought, like, you know what I mean? Like, that that would be the... You would be loved so much. Like, I'd be like, you know what, Lizzie? I'm going to take the bullet for us. No, don't do it. No. Somebody has to do it. Manny, not you. Manny, you're, you're too young. I'll do it. You know what? I'm not going to shoot you. That was so heroic. Really? That's crazy, because I didn't want to do that. You know what I mean? But that... But that, you would have. You would have sacrificed yourself. I was, so, yeah. I was thinking right, I would have. Yeah. Nah, Manny's like, you wouldn't have. But anyway, <laughs> um, what, you know, re- really, he he has that moment, a snapshot of time again, right? Or that time or a moment or a, a feeling of these sentient creatures who are just going through the emotions of, shh, I'm going to die. Mortality. You know, it's it. It's mortality. It's the most heavy. And the weight, the heaviness is the heaviness and the weight of that moment. And of the bronze. And of the bronze. That's what I mean. Like, it's all heavy. The bronze is heavy. It's, it's uh, the weight of the, the symbolism is heavy. The moment of time is heavy. And the fact that all these characters are in a different kind of exploration of the last moments, right? The last moments of their life. And they're, they're, you could feel them thinking about that. That's heavy. That's deep. Rodin was able to get there. Uh, he was able to get to that place where oftentimes as an artist, it's hard to say, I'm going to take that emotion and put it into my hands. That transition is missed by most artists. Most artists go, I'm going to just do this, but it's never like the depth of a moment or a time or their soul that's in the work. It's hard to really get. Rodin does. Like you see that in Rodin's work. There's so many iconic works, too. So, like, you go to the Le Penseur, the thinker, right? I mean, come on. See, the way that you did it is actually a misnomer. So oh, is it? Is it like is this? It exactly. But the diag- really? The diagonal? <laughs> yeah, that makes okay, sense. Okay, so the thinker. Boom. Oh, wait. No, I'm doing it wrong. There we go. The thinker. <laughs> so what we're doing, if you're listening to this and not watching, is that the thinker is perhaps his most iconic work, which yes. was it's at a, every freaking museum along. Like there's only not about one fifty of them, so yeah, not every museum. I don't know, man. <laughs> but anyway, it was taken from a larger work that he never fully realized, called "The Gates of Hell." And that one we should talk about, too, because it was his big well, masterpiece, that, the well, Pièce de Résistance. So, yeah, you're right. It, it, it we was. should talk about it. I don't know how much time we have to talk about it. See, this is why Rodin demands <laughs> two sessions. <laughs> he, <laughs> I'm serious. They all could. But let's just go back to the thinker, because okay. that's what you introduced. So he is initially the figure of Dante, and that comes from the narrative of the Gates of Hell. But isolated, he seems like he just represents not a man, but a thought, but a universal truth, which is the gesture of inquiry. And if you think about what it might look like to think, you put your hand under your chin and maybe you rest an elbow on a knee. But a naturalistic way of depicting that would be resting the left elbow on the left knee or the right elbow on the right knee. And Rodin, he always wanted to defy expectations a little bit. And so he adds physical contrapposto, but also emotional depth by putting the left elbow on the right knee. So it's just a little bit more complex and less naturalistic than we think. So then I'm going to ask you this. Why is he naked? I don't know. Like it's, you know, like, okay, so... Everything you said is right on. It's heavy. It's deep. It's profound. What's it? Rodin's heavy. He's like dark. You know what I mean? He's like a really morbid playwright or what? You know what I mean? If he was, he would be like <laughs> Tom he was Stoppard. A, yeah, he'd be like, you know, 
if he was a director, you'd be like Cronenberg, but not as like horribly evil, but you know, the, the heaviness and the darkness of it. But then I wonder why, why is he naked? And, and the slab that he's sitting on, what, is that an anvil? It looks like an anvil. It's stone, but it's in the shape of an anvil and it has a weight to it. And if you took off the thinker and you left the base, that alone would be a beautiful contemporary piece of artwork. That alone has this kind of undulating terracotta feeling of, uh, you know, not terracotta, but granite, like granite, stone, heaviness. Solemnity and modernity all together. Boom. Solemn modernity again. That's what I'm talking about. So, <laughs> but no, you see that by itself, it's beautiful. And then you put the thinker on, it's beautiful. It's all this clay. It's all this stone. Like there's a... There's a stone-like quality about him, too, almost as if he's part of the base. He's part of the granite that rises. And you have that nice, beautiful S-curve, too, from the bottom. You know, you do. You have the contraposto, right, which is good because you get the pinch side, the stretch side from a drawing perspective, a sculpture perspective. But on the other hand, you're getting this S-curve, which is a very classical curve if you look at the rhythm of the base to the knees to the back. That's a weird thing, too. You're getting that beautiful design as well. Yeah, serpentine, and I think it emphasizes his body. So to go back to your question, why is he nude? Yes. Perhaps you are, you've already answered it, but I think the other element is that Rodin was trying to render truth. And we are in our truest form when we are nude. And he, mm. when he was given the commission to render Balzac, initially he showed Balzac nude too, the swollen body with fat, and he had to cloak him. And so in the work that's outside of LACMA, for instance, we have the, the better known version of Balzac with this, this cloak. But Balzac, initially, the, 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 poet. the poet, not Balzac. She didn't say that. No, but originally he showed Balzac with his Balzac. <laughs> <laughs> I just like softballed it for you and you just hit it. I, I did. was like, here's the perfect never... pitch. Make sure to hit it. And you're like, I've never out the said park. Balzac before. Now I just said it twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you mean that he was, that Balzac had his ball sacks because he was naked? Is that true? Yeah, I don't know how he was naked at first. He was. He was. And then he, he covered was him. Nude. We say nude oh, well, in nude. an academic yes, yeah. space, not but, naked. But then they covered him. <laughs> yes. So I did why? not know that. Yeah. Wow. So I think Rodin. That was just where That's he crazy. wanted to go. He wanted to show people in their their primacy, in their raw, visceral states. And if you have clothes, then you have an artifice. You know, just talking about Rodin makes me realize that I actually. I think I love him more than I actually thought I loved him when I first entered this conversation. I'm not even kidding. Like, I'm just like, Rodin, and I, and I had watched a documentary not too long about him, and it's just one of those things where you're just like, wow, he was so good. He wasn't even recognized until he was four, in his 40s, and he was recognized because people were gossiping about the fact that he was a fake, and people were like, no, he's real, and no, he's fake. They weren't even gossiping. They weren't even getting him fame because he was so good. Right? It was really the gossip that made him recognize. And then people went, oh, shit, this guy's incredible. It took a lot of other stuff to make people wake up to his real talent. Then all of a sudden, he gets involved with this beautiful woman, beautiful sculptor, just an incredible artist, Camille Claudel. And we would be 
it would be blasphemous if we didn't mention her because he spent 10 years in a relationship with her. They created works together. There's a, doc, there's a, a movie called Camille Claudel, which is about her biography. Uh, it's obviously, I'm sure, enhanced and fictionalized a little bit. But the point is that, like you see in that movie, that she did a lot of work for him. And giving the misogynistic, uh, perhaps, you know, tone in that, in that time in France, uh, perhaps that's true. Perhaps she did help him. She was definitely his, his student and then became his muse and then became his lover. They were in a torrid relationship uh, for 10 years. And I think that she probably did help him create some of his works. And he definitely taught her. So once again, it's a thing where sometimes a lot of people say that this right here is just Camille Claudel without... Rodin, that's crazy because he put his name on it. But at that point, she's kind of in the atelier of much like Rubens, much like Rembrandt, much like all the artists of the past, where they had students trained for them and then painted their work and then they signed their name. Or the so, artists of the present, the artists of the present too. I think that we do have this collaborative nature yeah. of the actual execution of art, yeah. and that in no way means that the authorship shouldn't just be the artist. I just think that there has to be transparency in the execution. But Camille Claudel was part of his workshop. They did collaborate together. Yeah. And, and I think she did a lot of his work. Yeah, I do too. And I yeah. think a lot of his later works were done by multiple hands. I agree. And I could feel the femininity that you could say whatever. Rodin's the greatest sculptor ever. But he, had, he wasn't really in touch with that feminine quality that when you see a Camille Claudel sculpture, it's way more feminine. When you see his work later on, it's feminine. It's beautiful. It's romantic. The kiss is feminine-ish. It's, you know what I mean? But it's not as feminine as he was able to sculpt later with a very few, you know, moldings of the hand. He, he captured that. And I think he captured that because she either did it for him. And that doesn't demean his incredible talent, by the way, because she did it for him. Let's Let's not forget, Rodin was by himself doing incredible sculpture and, you know, and sculptures his entire career. Then he met her, found another side of himself, opened up another side. But really, she was greater than him in that space. And, and that's a really heavy thing to say. But she was a, a, an incredible sculptor, not nearly of the power and magnitude as Rodin or as academic as Rodin. Uh, but she understood something he couldn't ever understand, which is the feminine aspect of sculpture. I really agree with that. I think that the psychological curiosity that he exhibits in his work of men is not quite as profound in yeah. his work of women. Yeah, it's a little bit more like, boop, because... Yeah, it's one-dimensional. It's like, oh, it's a woman, and so she's going to be soft and right. curvilinear and romantic, but yeah, it doesn't right. really get in there. Which makes me retract and not retract what I said earlier, which is he's <laughs> able to project his soul. But he was. He was able to project his energy into his characters that was masculine. Sure. And that's all there was to it. So look, I believe Michelangelo was able to capture the feminine anymore, way more. Are I, you kidding? If you look at I a really, body by Michelangelo, it is so obvious that he never saw a boob in his life. No, I know. He took, well, but that's because he loved the male figures. But I think his <laughs> male figures were so celebrated that they were feminine. That's what I'm saying. Like, of course, he, he was known to say, I'm going to take a man and put boobs on him and make him a woman because right. <laughs> he idealized the male figure. He, he loved it way more than the female figure. And of course, we know why. Because, you know, he just liked it that way. I actually think he was asexual. 
Michelangelo. Or pansexual. Or pansexual, perhaps. He was work sexual. That's what he was. Absolutely. But you're right. His rendering of the Virgin Mary and the Pieta has so much complicated nuance and depth and tragedy. Deep woman energy. Michelangelo did that. And Rodin Rodin could could never do it. No. However, we need to end by saying Rodin launched modern sculpture in the way that we know it today, in the way that we won't even anticipate it could be in the future. All thanks to Rodin. Rodin is, uh, I think, the second greatest sculptor of all time. And if you don't know Rodin, you've actually been in a horrible sleep and wake up. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Ball sack. (laughs) 